Hello, and welcome to our podcast, How Therapy Works, a non-denominational guide to psychotherapy for new and experienced therapists. We're here to help you understand what's going on in your sessions and what to do next. This is a standalone podcast, as well as a chapter-by-chapter companion guide to Dr. Smith's book, Psychotherapy, a Practical Guide. And I'm Dr. Jeffrey Smith. That's Jeffrey with an E-R-Y. I'm a psychiatrist and associate professor of psychiatry at New York Medical College, and we're here to relieve some anxiety about being a therapist. And I'm Amelie Southwood, a mental health counselor in private practice, certified in EMDR. Today, we're going to introduce you to a few of the most helpful concepts to clarify the work we do. This podcast is a companion to part two of chapter 14 in the book. So, Dr. Smith, we've been looking at the behavioral avoidance patterns that we therapists need to be aware of in our patients during session. Uh, Today, we're going to look at hidden agendas. And I was wondering what you have to say about hidden agendas and how do we find a hidden agenda in a patient? Right. So we're looking at all of those entrenched dysfunctional patterns as ways of avoiding some kind of emotion, some kind of difficult emotion. And specifically in this chapter has been about ones that are manifested by maladaptive behaviors. So now in this part of the chapter, we're turning to those maladaptive behaviors that happen because of some thought process that goes on in in the non-conscious mind. In other words, these solutions come from a period in development when the child's mind is already advanced enough to be thinking out solutions that that involve some logic, and that makes them more advanced in a way, but they can be just as crippling as the kinds of problems that we've uh, that we talked about earlier in the in the last podcast and so The first group or the first category of maladaptive behaviors that are based on some kind of ideation are are what I call hidden agendas. And the way you can tell is that there's some maladaptive peculiar behavior that you notice. And often in in therapy, it's going to be in some way tugging on you, uh, in some way sending a message to you that, that there's something that needs to be attended to. A client might be critical of the therapist and somehow hinting at you that you're, that you're not doing your job right. Or the person might be engaging in some clearly self-defeating patterns that, that don't really have a good explanation. And let's take that as an example. Doing something self-defeating is a pretty good way to send hints to the grown-ups that there's something they're not noticing. If a child is obviously um, engaging in some behavior that, that, is, that works against them, then that can be a way of, of doing what I call sending smoke signals to the big people that something's wrong and hoping that the grown-ups are going to realize that they're missing the boat or they're, or they're not doing the right thing. In a more drastic example, it might be a young person who is being molested and doesn't dare to say it out loud, but is trying, is doing some behavior that's hinting to the parents that there's something they ought to be paying attention to. So you, you state in the book that, there's, uh, that what tugs at the therapist 
is often irritating. It's an irritating tug that the therapist's own internal response to the client's behavior is one of irritation. I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, it, it might be that, that the client somehow is trying to get you to do something or to pay more attention or to notice something. And, and you kind of feel this tug on you, but you don't know exactly what are, they, what are they trying to get me to do. Now, this goes back to something I'm, I've said before, that ch children solve problems, and the, the non-conscious problem solver solves problems, not by solving the problem, but by motivating the grown-ups to solve it. Because children don't know how to solve problems. They don't really expect themselves to. And when it's a matter of some emotional issue that's, that feels like life and death to a child, then it's going to be pretty important. And they're going to keep on repeating in the hope of getting some results. Now, why is all of this so secretive? Why is it so indirect and, and nonverbal? And non well, it would seem to me that you state that developmentally, um, this begins at around the age of four. Yeah. The formulation of hidden agendas. And perhaps at four years old, the child cannot verbalize the need and therefore is acting it out. And then that becomes an entrenched pattern. Of That's one good reason. But there's another one also, which is that this, it, the child wouldn't need to be nonverbal, might be able to articulate this in some way if the big people were listening. Typically, this is a situation where they seem not to be listening and not to be responding. And so that gets locked away as an adaptive pattern that may come out in the future, especially in therapy when you have this nice grown-up person who's there for no other purpose than to help you solve problems. So you cite in the book, in Recognizing Hidden Agendas, a very, you use the example of perfectionism in the book as being one hidden agenda. Can you, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure, that, that's quite a common one because right. when, when parents aren't responsive in some way that a child needs them to be, then naturally children aren't going to come to the conclusion that the parent is inadequate because that would mean, as we've mentioned before, a complete loss of hope and children will not relinquish hope. So instead, children find some way to make themselves responsible for the problem. And one of the obvious ways is, I'm not a good enough kid. I, I, better, be, I better try really hard, and if I'm really, really better, then maybe the grown-ups are going to take care of whatever it is that needs to be taken care of. And since children's thinking at age four or so is pretty black and white, then I'm going to try to be really, really good translates to I'm going to be perfect. And of course, that can continue throughout life as a way of trying to motivate the, the big people to do their best. And since it's impossible, then the person can continually say, gee, if it didn't work, it's because I didn't quite do it well enough. I'd better be even more perfect. And then they're very disappointed and ashamed when they're not perfect. And oh my gosh, it's a whole cycle that goes on for forever until there's some awareness of what's going on and why. You also stated the example of a four-year-old boy whose mother told him, when you are 18, you will have to be on your own. 
it's an example that just struck me so much because what happened, the four-year-old obviously had no way of understanding what when you're 18 means. Uh, he didn't know whether that was tomorrow or day after tomorrow or had no no concept. And so for him, it meant he'd better be completely self-sufficient as of today at age four. Well, that was a huge challenge and rise to the challenge he did. And he became very successful financially as an adult. The problem was that relationship was really scary to him because he might not be good enough. He might not be self-sufficient enough. And he certainly shouldn't depend in any way on another person in an intimate relationship. And since relationships are built on interdependence, he couldn't have a satisfactory partnership in, in his life. And that was a very sad thing. So the end result was difficulty in relationships, but the cause was really this misunderstanding, an ideational thing, a misunderstanding from early childhood that you're going to have to be completely and totally self-sufficient and not need anybody for anything. Which is not very realistic um, for emotional. No, but it's a, it's a great illustration of how a four-year-old thinks about things and how those ideas can, can have a lifelong influence. So how do you treat this? What is the most challenging part of, of treating hidden agendas? Well, I think it's developing an antidote. In other words, helping the person realize, because by this time, they've probably got things totally rationalized, like the man, the, the, the man whose mother said he was going to have to be um, a total grown-up. Um, he had rationalized that it was a good thing to be successful in business and had no idea why he was having trouble with, uh, with relationships. So not only do you have to help the person understand their maladaptive behavior, but you also need to help them understand how things could be better. Like, for example, let's say the person who feels like they have to be perfect, you need to show them that being imperfect is, is really okay. I came across this yesterday with, with a physician who is, has very, very high standards for herself, and it comes from something like this. Well, in her profession, being a perfectionist is exactly what she needs. She looks at cancer cells in, on, under a microscope, and she'd better be right. So perfectionism is entirely reasonable there. So how do you find the antidote? Well, we talked about how she gets very angry when her children leave a mess in the kitchen, and how the children are also very high-performing and high-achieving high uh, kids, and they need to make a mess in the kitchen. That's where they relax and feel good and refuel their batteries. So the antidote for her is that it's okay to try to be perfect as much as you can, but everybody needs a time when they let their hair down. And, and that's a healthy and important thing. So once she's got a concept, once she has an idea that shows how the original perfectionism is wrong, then we, can, then we can hope to get the two of them uh, activated together at the same time. Uh, it, it would seem to me that shame would be a huge hindrance to treatment because if a person is striving to be perfect, mm. to admit their imperfection and their vulnerability would 
engage shame, that those are tight, that the two are tightly wound together. How do you proceed without or proceed in this treatment and avoid the shame or confront the shame? Uh, so it's different in each case. In, the, in this particular example, by painting a picture of how delightful it is to be able to muck around in the kitchen and make something delicious and not even worry about getting getting dishes dirty and things like that you, you know we could we could touch on something that where she could feel some some delight in that and and so that was a good a good antidote other times it may be talking directly about the shame and how it's inappropriate or how perfection is impossible but you're you're very right to touch on shame because it covers all of these hidden agendas. Because why? Because when you don't dare say something out loud for fear of offending the grown-ups, then shame often gets developed as a value system to make sure that you don't ever let, let, the, let the words out about what you're really thinking. You keep it always hidden. So shame is a really big problem with all of these uh, hidden agendas. And often that's a layer of... EDP of entrenched dysfunctional pattern that needs to be worked through before we're going to be able to get to the incorrect belief and then to the antidote to the correct belief that needs to be substituted. So when I said activating the belief and the antidote at the same time, you may recognize that I'm talking about a change mechanism called memory reconsolidation. Mm -hmm. Because when, when that the synapses and the and the memory cells that represent that original incorrect belief are activated with an emotional content that is there's affect then that's the time when putting that belief at the same time the same room the same sentence with the correct belief has the possibility of altering the synapses so that the old belief gets erased and replaced by by a correct one and that's what uh, Bruce Ecker, with his coherence therapy, has been working on honing the, the practice of using memory reconsolidation to change this kind of ideational hidden agenda. This is what we do with EMDR also. Once we uh, reduce the, the distress of a particular target, we then replace a more ecologically valid belief about the self in a process that we call titration. And that is really the reconsolidation part of EMDR and the reprocessing. Yeah. You know, memory reconsolidation is at the core of just about every therapy that seeks enduring change. And increasingly, we're specifically aware of the importance of activating the affect, which EMDR does a very good job of, and introducing the antidote at the same time. Um, and it's really when those two things are right together, that's when the memory cells become volatile and are subject to being reprogrammed. So EMDR is effective, Ecker's coherence therapy is effective, and many others. I also mention in the book acceptance and commitment therapy because part of what needs to happen here is the non-conscious problem solver needs to accept that 
the solution to this problem is not redoing childhood. It's accepting that childhood was compromised, but you're grown up now and it's going to be okay to move forward. And that is sometimes very challenging in itself. Okay, so what are the treatment principles then for working with hidden agendas? I mentioned a number. Uh, Be aware that the agenda has stayed hidden and therefore it hasn't changed since early in life. Uh, Probably somewhere around age four or up, uh, people have ideas beyond that as well. Uh, Expect shame and be ready to work with that shame and, and covering this whole thing up. Be aware that if you just try to change the maladaptive behavior, you're probably going to run into pretty strong resistance and and it will be very hard just to change the behavior without understanding the ideation that goes on behind the scenes. You say that um, a compliant patient, one who is open to uh, trying behavioral change, will try to change and fail. I thought that was interesting. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure, because we haven't changed the reason for the behavior. And so so the non-conscious problem solver will just see this as a, a little roadblock and will find a way around it and, and come up with another strategy. Sometimes it's important to realize that it may be that the therapist is the one who the client is, is non-consciously trying to influence. And how do we see that? How do we recognize that? Well, that's the one where you feel a tug. Uh-huh. You know, that... that your client is trying to somehow influence you, is trying to get you to do something or to notice something. And if you're alert, then you'll start asking yourself the question, and pretty soon you might ask your client the question. You know, it feels like, feels like something's going on here. You know, one thing that I have found, a question that I ask myself frequently when I am in session is, you know, when I do have patients who, who criticize me or try to change me, rather than get defensive or up in arms about it, I ask myself, what does this person need? Yeah. Um, that's, a, that's a super important question because in general, these hidden agendas have to do with seeking fulfillment of some kind of important life and death emotional need from early in life. Right. And it might be more than an emotional need as well. It might be a need to, for protection, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, you say that the patient will have little emotional understanding of any other way to have needs met. So successful experiences can help build a basis for hope. So you also mentioned that the therapist may need to advocate for the patient's needs. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, because this is also hidden that the patient doesn't really isn't really aware that they have a need there and so they're 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 tugging on you trying to get a need fulfilled that they can't even acknowledge exists so you may have to go on the side of of you know gee you're really tough on yourself and and i think there are needs here that that need to be attended to at the same time the childhood solution to the problem is to is to fix the lack is to get the need fulfilled and that's really not going to work in the long run. But there has to be usually some hope in, in that direction at the same time as you're going to anticipate that ultimately that's not the, that's not the solution. W- one other thing that's very important here is that sometimes the need is for justice. Sometimes the hidden agenda is simply to get the grown-ups to recognize that they're not doing the right thing. 
and to get them to shoulder the appropriate guilt for having not done a good job. Because obviously in childhood, they weren't doing that. And so sometimes that sense of injustice and the need to repair the injustice is, is extremely important. It makes me think of, of a patient whose one agenda in therapy was to show me that I was a bad therapist and get, to get me to acknowledge that I was a crummy therapist. Uh, that was a tough one to deal with. Right, because, it, uh, so what do you do? <laughs> she, she ultimately was increasingly provocative and one time got a little bit agitated and that was the end of the therapy because that was the unforgivable mistake. And so, sad to say, she decided I was, not, I was not a good enough therapist for her. And I'm sure she went on and found another inadequate therapist after that. Mm-hmm. You know, that's one that got away. What do you think would have happened if you had said, well, maybe I am a crummy therapist. Why do you keep coming to me? I did all of that. And uh-huh. what happened? It escalated. It escalated. The, the provocative kinds of things the demands that she was making that I couldn't fulfill, and then the disappointment that I didn't fulfill them, and why didn't you do that? Why didn't you call me back on the fifth time that day? And things like that. And so her stamina in provoking those kinds of responses uh, was unlimited. Uh Uh-huh. Right. So, So that's kind of an extreme case. With dysfunctional, unsatisfying primary relationships being in the past... And or or working with a patient who is an adult and whose primary relatives are deceased. We can't change uh, the patterns. It seems to me that the only thing we can do as therapists is validate the the pain, the emotional that that sense of injustice. It was not fair that my mother could not attend to me. That my father was violent with me. Is that enough? Is it enough to say, yes, you're right, it wasn't fair? Yes, that's enough, but it's much harder than you might, uh, than you might think. Right. As I'm sure you know, that, that this validation can go on for quite a while, and ultimately that's where, where the um, focus on, on acceptance can be important uh, to say that you know, there's a time when it's time to bury this, and we, we have acknowledged it, you know about it, and it's, it's, you know, you can spend the rest of your life feeling bad about this, but it's time to come to an acceptance. Uh, that can be an extremely challenging part of the therapy. Right. And then I guess comes a commitment to living well and happily now. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, I mean, there's so much to be said about hidden agendas, but before we move on to, uh, to guilty quests, is there anything else you want to tell us about? hidden agendas? When, when you mention that parents might be deceased, one of the phrases that comes to mind is, quote, this is an inside job. Y- you know, what people don't always realize when they're focused, when the child part of them is focused on changing the grown-ups, that, that really what's happened is this problem has been internalized. It's become a part of the self, and that's the arena where change needs to take place. Mm-hmm. All right. So now let let us speak of guilty quests. Okay, I I love this one because this is where Freud's Oedipus complex actually shows up. And what happens is 
that starting somewhere around five, children begin to have new solutions to problems that were not there before. And I'll explain in a, in a few minutes what why that is. But they begin to have fantasies about how someday they're going to solve their problem. Someday everything's going to be great. But sometimes uh, under good conditions, those kinds of wishes of a five-year-old begin to be a vision for how I'm going to lead my life and what my life is going to be about. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a fireman or I'm going to be a ballerina. Those, those kind of classic dreams begin gradually to morph into something that actually is doable. And they're influenced little by little by the realities of, of the situation and turn out to be then sort of a, a blueprint for the person's life that starts around, around that age because, because of the cognitive development becoming sophisticated enough to be able to imagine that kind of, of plan for life. But what if the plan has to do with a plan that's going to solve some problem that wasn't solvable during childhood and that runs into trouble with the conscience? Example. So, so classic Oedipus complex, there was a shortfall in feeling loved and attended to and cared about as an individual that got translated into a, a desire to have closeness in the form of closeness that a five-year-old might imagine, which is physical, physical closeness with mom. And that obviously is something that uh, is quickly going to be squelched by by a healthy mom and turns into a secret desire that is at odds with the conscience. Well, what happens to that person as they grow up? They have this this deep secret that I have some kind of of a bad wish, some kind of a wish that I shouldn't have that has to do with sexuality. And what happens then to sexuality? It gets compromised. It becomes an area of ambivalence and shame and, uh, and inhibition. And so maybe that's the, the boy, for example, who is kind of slow to deal with sexuality, has the desires, but somehow they don't get expressed in a, in a very direct or comfortable way. And the person has no understanding of, of quite why. One one example that I that I think of, um, it's always perilous to to try to you know analyze real people in history. So this is just talking about a story, not about a real person. But uh, J. Paul Getty said on his deathbed that he would gladly have given up all of his money only to have a successful marriage. Uh, he was very successful in every other way. He was the richest man in the world at the time. I would guess, I would just venture a guess from based on that story, that there was some kind of inhibition or something was compromising his ability to relate to a wife. And so he had five wives, five marriages, none of them worked out, and it led to a very sad life. I'm just guessing this would be a typical sort of presentation of an, of an Oedipal type problem. And that can go for girls as well. And, you know, I, I don't really subscribe to all of the kind of the classic Freudian stuff about penis envy and things like that. But I think in individual cases, if you're on the alert for specific areas, especially areas of a person's life that they care more about than anything else, 
but somehow don't get to achieve. One of the phrases that I think of, it comes from Paul Simon. He says in one song, the nearer your destination, the more you're slip sliding away. Mm. And that to me is kind of the hallmark of guilty quests, of things that became a, an important aim of, of that person somewhere around the, this age five, but somehow ran into trouble with the conscience. And then when, it, when there's trouble with conscience, then it becomes a source of shame and cover-up. And that's why it takes usually a long-term therapy for these things to become uh, clear, because they're so hidden and they're so covered up with shame and they're so specific. So without, without turning today's podcast into, into a, a foray in sexual dysfunction beginning at an early age, I'm just curious... What if you have a patient who was uh, molested by a father at age five in a nonviolent way? Mm -hmm. uh, so that, that could, for example, the easy part of that treatment is the negative part is about being abused and being hurt. Uh, that might be more conscious and more accessible. The part that's much more covered up with shame and you're going to have to be extremely delicate about approaching that, would be that the five-year-old might have had desire as well. Maybe this experience had a positive side to it because that's the only way she got attention. And that would be extremely shameful to be able to uh, access and would obviously, if your sense of desire and your wishes to be, to be paid attention to were so tangled with shame, obviously that would compromise your sexuality. I did work with a young man, and I thought, gee, this is a classical Oedipal fantasy, that his mother was kind of sexy and was a little too forward in the way she uh, dealt with, with him, and he wound up with really strong inhibitions in the, in the area of sexuality. And some years after we've, we've ended treatment, and he moved to another town and did quite well in his career, but he still had trouble with relationships. And he went to an EMDR workshop, and in the process of doing EMDR, the memory finally came out that his mother had actually molested him. So we could still t talk about his pathology as being a guilty quest, but it was a guilty quest that was not based on fantasy. It was based on real stuff that happened. Oh, and by the way, after that, he was much better. Good. <laughs> Good. You, you mentioned in uh, your discussion of guilty quests, the notion of someday and the dimension of time in a young person's mind, in a five-year-old's mind. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so, so this is a, a kind of an intriguing realization that struck me one day quite a long time ago, that, that what happens with these guilty quests is that it's actually a revolution in the child's problem solving to be able to put off the solution to the future and to feel better just by having hope. So imagine the, the four-year-old who's suffering from being feeling weak and inadequate and fantasizes that, that well, I'm, I'm Superman, I'm Batman, and I'm, I'm going to um, punch those bad guys and, and knock them out. And that's all in the here and now. What happens, and, and I went back and kind of researched this in the developmental literature, 
is somewhere around five and a half on the average, children become able to conceptualize life as an arc, as a long-term thing with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And that's time. Right. And that's when exactly the time when kids begin to really appreciate fairy tales. And fairy tales, how do they begin? Once upon a time. Right. And how do they end? And they lived happily forever after. That's right. So, so the fairy tale is built on the arc of time. And when that becomes accessible to the child's cognition, then they have access to a new way to solve problems, which is someday I'm going to be, someday I will, because I don't have the power to do it today, but someday. And so that's a really critical change in problem-solving style and that's the, that's the basis of these plans that then run into trouble with the conscience and become Oedipal era uh, troubles that, that then can go on through a lifetime. And again, as I said at the beginning, the hallmark of them is they're very specific. They're very central to what the person's wishes are in life, to their life plan, and, and somehow they get thwarted. They get thwarted and they have intense and powerful feelings behind them, which cause powerful and sophisticated efforts of the mind to keep them covered and mm-hmm. out of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and so, so these things obviously are going to take time, and this is where really the open-ended therapy, open-ended talk therapy really comes into its own because it's very likely without that kind of setting that the subtlety of this sort of trouble, even though it's crippling to life, is, is not going to really become apparent. So it really takes patience and time to explore these things and peeling off layers of shame and, and cover-up and unconscious mental processing. Which I, I think for a young therapist or a therapist new to the field is particularly challenging because I think we come into the field with a fix-it attitude. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it would seem to me that to untangle uh, the guilty quest would require us to not do anything but to just sit there and listen very carefully and be patient in the therapy. That's right. Yeah. And this is where psychoanalysis really comes into its own. Uh-huh. All right. You mentioned some helpful readings about this in terms of uh, psychoanalytic work. Uh, Deborah Cabinets' book, Psychodynamic Formulation, um, as references for further inquiry for interested mm-hmm. therapists. Right. Deborah Cabanis, uh, she's a wonderful educator from Columbia, and she has a background actually in teaching. In, and so, so she takes that and applies it to psychodynamic therapy. And also Nancy McWilliams is another wonderful writer who delves into this kind of issue in psychodynamic therapy and psychodynamic formulation. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, so finally, uh, coming to the end of the chapter, you uh, discuss developmental arrest. And, and that comes from the realization that it's easy to talk about problems that we run into in the positive sense, but it's just as likely that people have problems from not doing things, from not coping, uh, not, not 
uh, not adapting is just as powerful a way of avoiding feelings as adapting in maladaptive uh, patterns. So we really need to include non, uh, non-adaptation as one of the kinds of pathology that we run into. And so what happens? Well, what happens is developmental arrest because the way that we develop psychologically, the way we grow our, our psychological skills and, and abilities and patterns is by confronting difficult problems and inventing solutions to those problems. Well, what if your solution to the problem is just to step away from it and not deal with it? One of the ways you see this sometimes is people who've been sexually abused will sometimes just arrest, will stop their development in that area and will look and act in a very childlike way. So as, as if to send the message that, that, well, I don't know anything about that and that that's just beyond me. Um, mm-hmm. That's a, that's a simple example, but there are many, many examples because development is not a across-the-board monolithic thing. Development is in different areas. So somebody might be hyper-developed in the area of manipulating other people, and at the same time, they're underdeveloped in understanding themselves or being able to admit to imperfections or something like that. So we see holes in development. And if you're alert to the developmental issues, remember there was a podcast a little earlier on some of the important developmental challenges throughout life. If you're alert to developmental issues, you'll notice where there's a, a gap in development, where there's some skills that you might normally expect that aren't there. It might be self-soothing. It might be it might be how to relate on an intimate basis. It might be understanding one's own feelings and being able to articulate them. There are many, many developmental skills that come out, and each one of these can be, in certain cases, can be missing. And the reason it's missing is generally because that kind of experience, for one reason or another, was being avoided because it was associated with some kind of a of an uncomfortable feeling. So... So pockets of immaturity. And interestingly enough, people are generally, when you ask them, they're very often able to admit, to say out loud when they're with a therapist, yes, this is an area where I'm not as mature as I'd like to be. Strangely enough, even though it's often associated with shame, it's something, maybe it's something that we is so unusual to ask about that it catches people by surprise and, and they're open to the idea. So, so it's interestingly something that we can talk about. I want to mention one particular kind of immaturity that I think is particularly important, and that is that when teenage development gets shortchanged, and in particular, a lot of people aren't going to like me for saying this, but using marijuana as a teenager is the very most potent way to stop emotional development and growth. The reason being that between the marijuana itself, which, which takes away uncomfortable feelings, and the culture that goes with it of the kind of laid-back lifestyle of avoiding challenges, all of those really undermine adolescent development, which happens when young people challenge themselves, when young people try out hard things like dating or getting close to another human being 
or seeing how far you can push your intellect, uh, how successful you can be, or how good you can be at some sort of sport thing. And so the way we get to understand who we are and where we fit into life is by meeting challenges and finding out where we do well and where we have trouble. If you're avoiding challenges, it isn't going to happen. And that's how we see people at age 25 or 30 who seem to be extraordinarily immature. Right. And who have, quote unquote, failed to launch, who are still living in their parents' basements. That's right. Uh, another interesting aspect of, of maturation is if you ask the secretaries of or the assistants of doctors and lawyers how mature is their boss, they'll roll their eyes and they say, oh my gosh. Because why? I think it's because intelligent people have more ways to avoid uncomfortable experience and, and more subtle ways to avoid that. And so, so intelligent people, I think one of the, one of the downsides of that is, is often the avoidance mechanisms are more tangled and, and more effective sometimes. And people who don't have that kind of, kind of skill just have to smack up against problems and solve them straight. And that may actually lead to a kind of maturation where often we see the social skills of people who are not particularly educated or intelligent may be extremely well-developed and, and very effective. Right. Emotionally. Mm -hmm. um, if we could just go back for a second to mm -hmm. the complications of drug abuse in uh, emotional development uh, and maturity. It, could you just tell us a little bit about... Um, how drug use, if not abuse, affects or impairs the effectiveness of therapeutic treatment. Right. So, so I've already mentioned, you know, how how substance abuse supports not engaging with life and not, and therefore not developing and learning. Substance abuse also is a coping mechanism, and once a person starts to use a substance on a habitual basis then little by little that becomes their one basket uh, coping strategy. And the other ones that they may have learned tend to fall into disuse. And so when therapy stresses people, it should, it has to, mm -hmm. in order to bring out those, those deep down uncomfortable feelings that need to be reformatted. And the substance is, works directly against that. And so that's a form of acting out that really undermines therapy. And in general, if it's going on on a habitual basis, the therapy is not going to go anywhere because as soon as the person gets close to an uncomfortable feeling, they're going to go in there, they'll use their substance and the feeling will be gone and, and no work is going to get done in the therapy. So substance abuse on any habitual regular basis, along with other things like uh, cutting or eating disorders or most any other behavior pattern, the kind that we talked about in the, last, uh, in the last episode, those behavior patterns that substitute for face or that prevent facing feelings are going to be directly antithetical, work directly against the therapy. And so your first job as a therapist is going to be to get some, some control over that behavior. Right. So then when my patients 
my younger patients come into my therapy room high and I tell them, please don't do that. And they ask me why I say, because you have to feel your feelings to heal them. And if you're high, you can't really feel them. Exactly right. And you're wasting your time. Yep. Yep. But it also works that if you go home right after the session and get high, then during the session, you're going to be aware uh, that relief is right around the corner, and so you're not going to feel. Right. Okay. Once a week, even if it's Friday night or on the weekend that you get high, it still can have the same effect uh, where there's an anticipation. I think one of the things that we maybe sometimes underplay as therapists is is the importance of anticipation because anticipated events are just as powerful as actual events. Interesting. I would I would love to spend a little bit more time with this idea, but unfortunately we have to stop. So this concludes today's podcast and thank you everybody for listening to the end. We hope it's been helpful to you, and we'd love you to visit Dr. Smith's website at www.howtherapyworks.com, where you can purchase the book, Psychotherapy, a Practical Guide, and find other articles for clients and therapists. Dr. Smith, would you like to add anything before we sign off today? Not this time. I think we covered it, and so bye, everybody, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.